Acts 18, verse 1, follow along as I read. It says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Let's pause right there and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a great and awesome God, a wonderful, beautiful, heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, that you've made a way for us to be able to know you, live in relationship with you. And God, I thank you that you have given us promises, promises for us to stand on. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your presence. And I pray today that our hearts would just be overwhelmed today in the reality of who you are and who you desire to be in each one of our lives. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So there were two men who were out on a hike out in the mountains, and they came across there on the trail a mountain lion. And this was a big old mountain lion, and he looked uh, really hungry. And so they they just were startled, and they stopped in their tracks. And the one guy whispers to his friend, he said, remember now, remember what we read in the book, keep calm. And it says if we keep calm and look the lion in the eyes, he'll run away. Remember that? And his friend said, yeah, I, I remember that. I read the book, and you read the book, but did the lion read the book? You know, sometimes in life, fear can just seemingly come out of nowhere like a lion and stop us in our tracks. I mean, you can be just cruising along in your life and suddenly you get some news, suddenly something is said that just startles you. And it can fill your heart with panic. Suddenly your mind is racing. You just find yourself distracted and perplexed. Has that ever happened to anyone here before? And I had a day like that this week. Where fear can just stop us right in our tracks. It was Alan Redpath, one of my favorite Bible commentators, who said this, that fear is the greatest enemy of our faith. And you know what? Satan loves to fill our hearts with fear. And here in Acts chapter 18, we find Paul. He's on his second missionary journey, and he comes to Corinth. And as he comes to Corinth, we're going to see that his heart is filled with fear. But in the midst of this place, the Lord is going to appear to him in a vision and give him a word. And it's not a word of rebuke, but it's a word of encouragement. Now, it's important for us to understand the kind of city that Corinth was, the kind of place that Paul was coming to. Let's talk about it in contrast to where we saw him last week, which was Athens. Athens had a Roman population of about 10,000 people and 60 or 50,000 slaves. So a total population of about 60,000 people. Corinth had a 
total population, if you counted the slaves, it would have been somewhere between three to 500,000 people. So we're talking, you know, almost 10 times the size of Athens. So it was this huge city. It was a favorite retirement spot for a lot of retired Roman soldiers. In fact, I want you to see this map. We have a map here of Paul's missionary journeys. And this is where we've seen him go. If you look up here on the far, uh, would be my left. It was, we saw him in Berea, come down through Thessalonica, or go to Thessalonica, come down to Athens. And then you see there's that little stretch of land between Athens and, and you end up in Corinth. And on both sides of Corinth, there was a gulf. By Centria, there was what was called the Saronic Gulf. And then on the other side, by Achaia, was called the Corinthian Gulf. And ships would come down into that Saronic Gulf area, and they would come down with their cargo. They would dock there at Corinth, and they would pass through that five miles. That little stretch where that arrow is is five miles across to the other side of the Corinthian engulf there. They uh, they take all their cargo off their ship, move it five miles on a cart, put it back on another ship, and it would go off. And then that whole stretch where the arrow was, was this passageway that got you from one end of Greece to the other end of Greece. You had to pass through Corinth. So Corinth was actually called the Bridge of Greece. And it was because of that passageway, it was also called the marketplace of Greece. So it was a huge commercial center. But Corinth was also known as a sports town because they hosted the Isthmus Games, which was second only to the Corinthian, uh, or excuse me, to the Olympics. And so they were really into sports, kind of like we are here, you know, in San Diego. And they, they, they had their favorite teams and their favorite athletes. And, you know, if it was today, they would have been playing fantasy sports and, you know, all of that. But like a lot of sports towns, Corinth was also had a reputation for being a party place. In fact, the name Corinthians was synonymous with being a party animal. Kind of like we think of today when somebody says, you know, that they're going to Vegas, you know, we think, oh, wow, you're going to Vegas. Like, like, you know, man, that's such a sinful place, party place, even though that's just one small part of Vegas that is that way. But that was the reputation that Corinth had. If anybody said that they were going to Corinth, people were like going, oh, wow, you know, you're, you're going there. In fact, in the theaters, you know, they put on plays. Anytime there was a person in a play who was from Corinth, they were in the play. They were the drunk. You know, that was the reputation that they had. So talk about being typecast, right? You know, you're going to an audition and, and, and they're like, where are you from? I'm from Corinth. Oh, we have the perfect part for you. You can play the drunk. You know, I mean, that's the way that it was there. That's the kind of place that Corinth was. That was the reputation that it had. It was also a city that was given over to idolatry. In fact, there was a temple right in the middle of the city to the goddess Aphrodite, the god of sensuality the goddess of sensuality, and every single night, a thousand temple prostitutes would go out into the city seeking to engage men in sexual immorality in worship to this goddess. 
So there was a saying that said, not every man can afford a journey to Corinth because it was going to cost you something. So my point in all of this is to say that Corinth was a very immoral place. And this is something I want to just pause because this is something that we need to remember. I want you to think about this. God's sending Paul. He comes to Corinth, this very immoral, this very wicked place. And sometimes we can become overwhelmed when we see the immorality and the wickedness, you know, around us. But this is something we need to remember. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now, we would think the opposite would be true. I think many of us think that that verse would read where sin abounds, judgment abounds all the more. I mean, that's what we almost in our hearts would expect it to say, but that's not what it says. It says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Why? Because Peter tells us in his epistle that God is long-suffering and desires that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So to this very wicked, immoral city, God sends his trusted and effective servant, Paul, and God would do something amazing there. Let's pick it up in verse 2. It says, and he found a certain Jew, that's Paul, named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Pause there and give me your attention. Now, it was customary for Jewish fathers to teach their sons a trade. Always a good thing to do. Even if your son was you know, feeling called to be a rabbi, they would teach him a trade. And Paul's trade, what he learned from his dad was tent making. And so that was a skill that he would use to support his ministry there in Corinth. And so he meets this amazing couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and he would work with them. We find out that he would actually end up staying with them and that they would end up helping Paul and partnering with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. So this is what Paul's life looked like in Corinth. In the morning, he would get up and he would make tents. And then in the afternoon, he would preach. So we could say that Paul was bivocational. Let's pick it up in verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Now, we've seen it. That's his pattern, right? He goes into city, he finds a a synagogue, and he'd go there and start to talk to them about Jesus. And so he reasoned in the Sabbath every Sabbath in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean." Now, this shaking of the garments, you know, shaking the dust off, was kind of a way in that culture of saying, I'm washing my hands of this. That this isn't on me. I've come, I've been faithful to preach to you and talk to you about Jesus, but you have rejected him, and so you're going to be judged by that. That's what Paul is is saying. And then he says here at the end of verse 5, and so from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He's saying to the Jews, if you don't want to listen to me, I'm going to find somebody 
Who does want to listen to me? This reminds me of when we were years ago, when we first started going over to Russia and over to Eastern Europe on trips to go and share the gospel, that on one of the, before one of those early trips, we were meeting with Pastor Chuck Smith, and, and Chuck said to us that when we were going, he says, I would encourage you guys to focus on the young people. Don't really focus on trying to reach the old people because so many of them are just really, really set in their ways. But I think you'll find the, the younger people to be a lot more open. And so we went over and sure enough, we're out in the streets, we're playing music or sometimes we'd bring our school choir with us and they'd be singing and all these hundreds of people would gather around and we'd start preaching and talking about Jesus. We'd do these dramas that people would gather around and then we'd do, we'd be preaching and these old ladies, they call them there in Russia babushkas. They would come out and they literally would be yelling at us. They were so opposed to our being there until they started seeing what God was doing in transforming the lives of some of their daughters and granddaughters and grandsons. And then suddenly they, they started coming to the Bible studies and coming to the meetings and many of them got saved. Well, that's sort of what's happening here in Corinth is Paul goes to the Jews. They don't want anything to do with him. So then he goes to the Gentiles. And, and I want to just point this out because I think this is something, in fact, I think there's somebody here who needs to hear this. It's one of the things I love about Paul. When one door shuts for Paul, he doesn't just quit. He's not like, okay, they don't want to listen here. I'm going to go find another city. When one door shuts, Paul looks for another open door. And the open door that he gets, oh man, watch this, verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now catch that. The idea here is that they literally, the synagogue and this guy's house shared an adjoining wall. So Paul walks out of the synagogue and justice is like, you can preach at my house. And so he walks right next door into the house of justice and starts teaching there and telling them about Jesus. Watch verse eight. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. So this is the head guy. This is the chief rabbi of the, the, the Jews there in In Corinth, it says that he believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. This is amazing. Paul goes right next door to the Gentiles, and he starts telling them about Jesus, and Crispus, the head rabbi, comes out of the synagogue, and he's kind of walking by, he's hearing Paul, and he feels just drawn. So he walks in the door, he's probably standing in the back, grabs a seat in the back row, and he's listening, and God starts working on his heart, and this guy ends up getting saved, and his whole house. And then the word is just spreading, and all these people in Corinth are getting saved, so God is just moving and working in mighty ways. People are, the, the gospel's going out. Paul has great helpers, Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, and Timothy. Things are going great. I mean, it's like this is a pastor's dream. Everything's just flowing. It's like wide open doors. But then Paul's heart was suddenly filled with fear. How do we know that? Well, notice what it says in verse 9. 
The Lord appeared to him in a vision saying, don't be afraid, fear not. Why did the Lord tell Paul to not be afraid? Because Paul was afraid. (laughs) For some reason, he just starts getting filled with anxiety here. In fact, he tells us, Paul tells us when he's writing to the Corinthians, this is what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You ever try to talk to somebody who's trembling? It's like they can hardly talk. That's what Paul says. When I was with you guys, I was in in weakness, in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. When I came to you guys, I, I mean, I was overwhelmed with fear. And no doubt, everything about the city and just how big it was and the immorality that was there was intimidating to Paul. And then he starts seeing God moving, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, gets saved. And Paul, no doubt, is thinking in his mind, oh no, here we go again. I've been down this road before. I know how this story ends because we've seen it. If you've been with us, in almost every city, Paul goes into the synagogue. He preaches to the Jews. They reject him. So then he goes to the Gentiles. They start getting saved. And what happens? The Jews stir up an uprising. There's a riot. Paul gets beaten. And sometimes he gets thrown in prison. And so when Crispus gets saved, I mean, this is the head guy. He's like, oh, no, I know where this is headed. But catch me on this. Paul was worrying about troubles that he was not yet facing. Let me say that again. Paul was worrying about troubles that he was not yet facing. And this is a terrible habit I think all of us can engage in. One Bible commentator put it this way, that Paul was borrowing, tr- he was borrowing trouble from tomorrow. You ever do that? Here, here, here's how we do this. It happens when we play the what if game. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this doesn't come through what if that door doesn't open what if they get upset and we start playing the what if game and half of the time we're worrying about things that we have no control over anyway anyone ever done that all of you who didn't raise your hand are just lying but uh (laughs) we all do that at times And when we do that, man, it crushes you. It can be exhausting. Now, i got to tell you, I love playing the what-if game when it comes to possibilities. You know, positive, like what what might happen if if God did this? What if God did this? Or what if God what if God opens that door? What 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 if this person gets it? I love to do that because when I do that and factoring God in the equation, I see endless possibilities that fill my heart with hope. Because our God is a big God. And when you're playing the what if game as it relates to negative things, that's just exhausting. So in the midst of Paul's fear and despondency, this is what we see happen. God ministers to him in a vision with words of refreshment 
and encouragement. Let's see what Paul, what God said to Paul, verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Here's what God does. God gives Paul three words of encouragement. He gives him, number one, a reminder of his presence. Number two, a reassurance of a promise. And number three, the right perspective about the city. And I think God wants to give all of us these three words of encouragement today. So let's break this down. Number one, he gives him a reminder of his presence. The Lord said to Paul, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? Because I am with you. That was his reminder of his presence. And you know, in times of fear and discouragement, it's easy for us to feel all alone, isn't it? In times of discouragement, it's easy for us to feel like God has abandoned us. In times of discouragement and fear, fear attacks our our intimacy with God. And so the first thing that the Lord wants to do to Paul here is to reassure him of, in his darkest trial, that he is there. And that's what God seeks to do in our lives. In our darkest trial, God wants you to know, you're not alone. I am with you. I haven't abandoned you. Think of Isaiah 41.10. The Lord says, fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed. Why? For I am your God. And I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think that's a word for some of you here today. That God is saying to you today that he hasn't abandoned you. So hang in there. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on him because he's going to strengthen you and he's going to uphold you. And because he is with you, even right now, when it doesn't feel like it. Hold to that truth. I think about the psalmist, David, who wrote in Psalm 23, there in verse 4, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's the promise of his presence. Jesus himself said in Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we will can boldly say, we can say it with confidence, I will not fear because the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? It's the reminder that God doesn't allow anything to come into our lives. Nothing comes into our lives without his approval. And so if it comes into our lives, even if it's a difficulty and we go through those, that means that God is with us and he's going to strengthen us and help us and uphold us to get through that difficulty. I love 1 John 4, verse 18. It says, there is no fear in love and perfect love casts out all fear. Guys, we have been loved with a perfect love. 
It was the love that led our Heavenly Father to send His only begotten Son, His beloved Son, Jesus, to come from heaven and come to this earth so that He could die on a cross to pay the price for our sins, to take the punishment that we deserve, and then three days later rise again from the dead to give life to all of us who would put our faith in Him. God did that because He loved us. He hadn't abandoned us, even though we had abandoned Him. He loved us. And his heart went out to us. God gave us his best. It's like Paul the Apostle. Put this, he said put this way in the, the book of Romans. He says, don't you know, and I'm paraphrasing. Don't you know? God has already given you his very best in giving you his son, Jesus. So don't you know he's going to freely give you all things? God doesn't save us and say, okay, I've saved you. Now you're on your own. I hope you figure it out. No. He's like, I I saved you. I love you. I've already given you my very best. Don't you know? I'm going to be there for every situation because that's how much I love you. So the reality of God's presence with Paul was not just meant to cast out his fear, but it was also to be his strength to keep on sharing to keep on preaching, to not be silent. Fear has a way of paralyzing us and crippling us. Fear has a way of making us want to hide. Fear has a way of of wanting to, to, making us want to isolate ourselves and to where we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable to anyone because we don't want to get hurt. That's what fear does. Fear robs us of our strength and discourages us. Fear has a way of weakening our resolve, but the reality of the Lord's presence is meant to do just the opposite. It's to motivate us and inspire us to keep going. In Paul's case, it was to keep preaching because this is what God wants us to know, that even in the moments where we feel that we are weak and insufficient, that he is enough, that he is always enough, and that he loves to take us in our weakness and come alongside of us where in, in our weakness and in our insufficiency in some situation that, that he comes and, and our poverty becomes a channel for his power to be displayed. So can I encourage you today, don't shrink back in fear. Don't limit God. Resist the urge that we all go through to strive to, for, for comfort and to play it safe. May the promise of God's presence with you today inspire all of us to take steps of faith and to not be afraid to walk into a situation where we feel over our head because when we get into that situation where we might feel over our head, that's when God shows up big time. Can I get an amen to that? So the first word of encouragement for Paul and us is the reminder of the Lord's presence. The Lord tells him, look, I'm with you. The second thing is the reassurance of a promise. He says, no one's going to hurt you. No one's going to attack you. This must have been huge for Paul to hear, considering what was the norm. What we've seen in every city that he would go to, that that he would receive this promise. No one's going to hurt you. No one's going to harm you this time. 
And here's the beautiful thing about God. Did you know that our God is the ultimate promise keeper? Yes. You know, in religion, religion tends to stress the idea of us being promise keepers. In religion, we tend to make promises and vows to God that we intend to keep. But the problem is, is we usually end up breaking them. How many of you here have ever made a promise to God that you have not kept? Show of hands. Come on. All right. Most of you. And again, the rest of you who didn't raise your hand, you're just lying. You know? Come on. You're in church. You don't know. But... <laughs> no, it's serious. We've all made promises to God, right? That we have broken. Now, don't get me wrong. Vows have their place. Promises have their place. I mean, think about marriage. In marriage, we make a vow to our spouse. My wife and I, when we got married over 37 years ago, we vowed to love, honor, and cherish one another. And I can honestly say that after 37 years, we both, we have always kept that vow to love one another. We've always stayed in love. There's been some days where we've loved each other less, but, but we've, we've always stayed in love, okay? But I can also say this, have I always, in these 37 years, have I always honored my wife? No. Have I always cherished my wife? No. There's been times where, where I have put my needs and my wants and my desires before hers. And she's done that to me too. She's done it less than I have because she's a far better person than I am. But, but, but we, we've done that. We broke those vows to honor and cherish because we're human. And you know, we've all made vow, vows to God that we have broken because we fail. We're made of flesh. We're sinners and we struggle. So I want you to catch this. I think the, the real message for us is not so much, the focus is not so much on us being promise keepers, but it's on us being promise believers in God who is the ultimate promise keeper. And here's the cool thing about that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we have this amazing verse that says this, for all the promises, everybody say all, For all the promises of God are in him, that's in Jesus, yes, that means they're true, and in him, in Jesus, amen, that means they're certain, to the glory of God through us. How many promises, church? All. How many is that? Well, one Bible commentator went through the whole Bible, and he went and he was counting up all the promises. He found there was over 3,000 promises that God has made to those who follow him. And Paul says in Corinthians, all of the promises are yes, they are true, and amen, they are certain in him, in Jesus. And here's the cool thing about that verse. Guess where you are at today if you are a believer in Jesus Christ? Where are you, church? In Jesus. You've been placed in Christ. And so that means that all of those promises are available to you because not because of your performance, but because of where you've been placed, that you have been placed in Jesus today. And we're talking promises of grace and promises of provision and promises for for our struggles and promises for death and promises for life. 
All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So God gives to Paul a reminder of his presence. I am with you. Don't be afraid. He gives him a reassurance of this promise. No one's going to harm you. And then number three, he gives him the right perspective about the city. He says, Paul, I have many in this city. You know, fear puts our focus on ourselves. Fear has the tendency of making us myopic. But God wants our first focus to be on him, and then second, on his mission. And this is the perspective that Paul want, or that God wanted Paul to have as he comes and he says, hey, Paul, understand, I want you to see this, this whole city, I want you to see this city differently. I have many in this city. And the inference there is not that there were a whole bunch of Christians in Corinth already. No, the inference, what God God is saying basically to Paul here is, I have many in this city, they just don't know it yet. There's many people in this city that I'm drawing right now, Paul, that I've been working on their lives. I have many people in this city. If Paul stayed distracted and crippled by fear, he was going to miss out on what God wanted to do through his life in that city. And so I ask you this question. How do you see your surroundings? How do you see your neighbors? You know those neighbors that are just, they're the the party animals. They're always loud. Their music's always loud. They always have something going on. They're like a nuisance. And, 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 you know, do you just pray for them to leave? Lord, let them move, you know. Maybe God's drawing them. And he wants to use you to reach them. How do you see your coworkers? How do you see the people that you work with? How do you see the people, you know, you young people over here that, that you go to school with and you're in a public school? How do you see, you know, the people in, in your school? May, 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 is God maybe saying to, to all of us, hey, I've got many people in that school, in your neighborhood, in that place where you work. I've got many people in that place. They just don't know it yet, but I'm drawing them. I'm working on their hearts, and I want to use you to reach them. The Lord wants us to have his perspective. When we were doing our lot of mission trips back in the day in Eastern Europe and Russia, one of the things I love about the European cities is that you know, the, the European city, everything like happens in the city. A lot of people live in the city and then very few people live out in the outskirts. And so in, in many European cities, I mean, you walk everywhere. And so when we would go on a mission trip to one of those cities, one of the first things we would do is we'd take our team, divide everybody up in twos, and we'd have them go out and do a prayer walk. And so they'd walk around the city. And it's interesting, you can come into some, you know, big city where you just feel out of place, but as you go and start walking around the city and praying, as we do a prayer walk, suddenly your your perspective changes. And you start seeing people the way that God does. And you see the loneliness and the emptiness, and you see the fear in people's eyes. And that's that's what God, I think, is wanting us to do. We don't walk around everywhere, but maybe around where you work or around your neighborhood as you're driving by me. May God give us his heart for the places where we live and the people that he's put in our path. 
Every time I drive by Vista High, I drive by it. I've been driving by Vista High for over 27 years now when I come to the church here. And every single time I drive by, and, and I always am praying, like, Lord, what do you want to do there? See possibilities that are endless of what God might want to do and how God might want to work. You see potential. So the Lord comes to Paul with these three words of encouragement, the reminder of his presence, I am with you. The reassurance of a promise, no one's going to harm you. The right perspective about the city, I'm working right now in this city. And the result was Paul took courage in God's presence. He received strength from God's promise. And Paul put his focus on God's perspective. And this is what it looked like. Catch this. Look at verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. These three words of encouragement to Paul, how did it affect him? Paul dug in. Paul dug in. He stays there for a year and a half. This is the second longest place that Paul ever ministered, second longest city. At Ephesus, he ministered for three years. Most places he was only in for a matter of weeks. Corinth, he stays for 18 months months. Have you been considering bailing on something? Bailing on someone? Giving up? Can I encourage you? Can I remind you that God is with you? Can I encourage you to remember that his promises are for you? And can I encourage you to ask him to give you his perspective about that situation? It might just result in being what you need to stay plugged in to stay committed, and to watch and see God do a miracle. God reminds me of this all the time. All the time, as I drive around North County, as I'm here in this place where we live, that, that the Lord is reminding me, God, Rob, I'm working behind the scenes. Stay faithful. Just keep doing what you're doing. But I want you to note this, that even though God was working, there was still opposition. And that's something sometimes that kind of throws us, right? We sometimes think, like, if God's in it, if God's working, there shouldn't be opposition. But in actuality, we should expect the exact opposite of that. Because God is working, there's going to be opposition. Why? Because the devil doesn't like seeing people get saved. The devil doesn't like seeing people come to Christ, so he always comes to bring opposition. So notice how this unfolds, and we're going to kind of wrap this up real quick here. Notice verse 12. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Galileo was the brother of Seneca. Seneca was a philosopher in Rome, and he was also the tutor to Caesar Nero. And so Galileo is a proconsul. He's like a governor. And the last thing that a proconsul in the Roman Empire wanted was any kind of uprising because your whole, you know, you were judged as being a governor and your effectiveness as a governor by, by the Roman Empire on, the, on this very thing. That if there were no uprisings, then okay, he's doing a good job. 
So the last thing Galileo wants is to see some uprising happens. And so the Jews come accusing Paul, saying, hey, this guy, he's a troublemaker. Look at verse 14. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, Galileo interrupts him. Paul's about ready to defend himself, and Galileo just isn't going to give him a chance. And he says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be judge of such matters. So Galileo basically says, if this was a civil matter, I'd rule on it. But because this is a religious matter, you guys just can take care of it yourselves. Verse 16, and he drove them from the judgment seat, like, get out of here with this. And then, catch this, this is, this is crazy. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, don't miss this. Sosthenes is the guy that takes Crispus's place. Crispus is the ruler of the synagogue. He gets saved. And they're like, okay, now you're a follower of Jesus, you're fired. And so they hire Sosthenes. He becomes the ruler now of the synagogue. And notice what it says. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. That means he turns a blind eye. So the Greeks, the Gentiles, they take Sosthenes, the, the ruler of the synagogue, the guy who's probably bringing all this, you know, accusations against Paul, and they beat him. And I just have to wonder if Paul's watching this and he doesn't get just like a little smile on his face. Even though it's horrible to watch some guy get beat up, but I just wonder if he's like, wow, this is a change of pace. I'm usually the guy getting beat up by the Jews. And now this head guy of the Jews is getting beat up by the Gentiles. And notice what it says next, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. He's like, okay, Lord, I get it. And he stays there a good while. 18 months. So not only did the Lord's encouragement to Paul help him dig in and remain faithful, it also helped him to move forward in courage as well. Look at the second part of verse 18. It says, then he took leave of the brethren. So now we're talking 18 months have passed. After 18 months, he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and he had cut his hair off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now pause there for a minute. Bible commentators don't or they believe that, that this vow was a Nazarite vow that Paul took. A Nazarite vow was a special pledge of separation, devotion to God, where the person taking the vow vowed to not touch any grapes nor any wine. They wouldn't touch a dead person, and they would allow their hair to grow. And they would only cut it as they were ready to go for uh, go to Jerusalem as a sign of purification. Now, why and when Paul had taken this vow, we don't know, or how long he had been in this vow. But it seems that it was a special time of devotion in his life to the Lord, and it was a good vow. It's always good to devote ourselves to the Lord. But I also want you to note that this vow had a realistic time frame attached to it. So verse 19 says, and when he had come to Ephesus, 
and left them there, that's Aquila and Priscilla, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now we're gonna see next week, Paul comes back to Ephesus and what happens there is incredible. You don't wanna miss next week. It's powerful passage. Well, let's wrap this up. Verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up, so he lands in Caesarea, there in Israel, and then he goes up. In Israel, anytime you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up because Jerusalem sits on a mountain. So he's going up to Jerusalem, and he goes up, then greeted the church. And so he goes up, and he, he participates in the feast. He greets the church there. And then it says, and then he went down to Antioch. Now he's heading back to his home base. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all of the disciples. So here's the thing I want to leave you with. The reminder of God's presence, the reassurance of God's promise, and the reestablishing of God's perspective about the city helped Paul stay in Corinth for 18 months. And then it helped him move out in courage when God said it was finally time to move on. And then it also helped him commit himself to the mission that God had given to him to preach the gospel and to strengthen the disciples. And so that's what he does. He goes back to Antioch and that's what he does. And as we close today, friends, I want to encourage you in this. God wants you and I to be courageous to stand on the promises of God. God wants you and I to be focused, knowing and believing that we are now living in the last days. And God wants us to have his eyes and his heart for the people around us, knowing and believing that he can save anyone. That's what God's seeking to work into our hearts today.